welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gunn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Controversy in the Napa Valley. Napa winery owner facing trial over online site hosting sex ads. Fallout from 2012 Santa Million reclassification continues, with two owners facing trial in 2020. Climate change in Champagne. Bollinger looks to historic grapes to maintain acidity in the wines. And as ever, our wine of the week. So before we dive into the news, uh, you had an interesting week, Matthew. I think you met a very interesting individual in the wine world. Who was that? Clay Morrison. And this was a fun trip. I went to Dry Creek Valley. I haven't been there in ages, even though it's a 40-minute drive away. We really need to visit there and go tasting more often because it's incredibly beautiful. And Clay is an interesting fella. His family goes all the way back to 1868. That's when they started farming in Dry Creek Valley. And so um, I met him a few weeks ago and tasted his wine and wanted to interview him for my podcast, Confused World of Wine and Drink, because um, he has lots of things to say about Zinfandel, the history of Sonoma County, and his family's role in it. And um, he's really, really fascinating. A very interesting history indeed. I think you should tell our listeners a little bit about it and the battle over land that happened there in Dry Creek. Yes, land is very important in California and continues to be so this day. So he talked about how his uh, ancestors kind of farmed the land and how they gained the land. But then in 1968, it was all taken off them by the government who requisitioned the land to create Lake Sonoma, which is an artificial dam. Shocking. Yeah, so they had to completely restructure their whole way of life. And then about 20 years ago, Clay himself started making wine from the grapes that his family had planted back in 1968. And so it's kind of how it really is a snapshot of California's history. Well, I guess if our listeners want to know more, they can just pop over to the Matthews World of Wine and Drink podcast and hear the interview. Absolutely. It's not up yet, but it will be soon. And Katie, an exciting development for you this week. What happened for you? Well, harvest has officially started in the Napa Valley, and I started my winemaking internship with Judd's Hill. So just working weekends uh, at the winery. So a lot different from what I did a few years ago at Cake Bread, where it was full-time, 12-hour days. These might be 12-hour days, but only twice a week, so much more doable, and especially with a full-time job as well. But it's great to be back in the cellar and really interesting uh, because it's a custom crush facility. So not only are we dealing with more commercial clients uh, making larger quantities of wine, but also with a lot of people in the trade, really professionals around uh, around the area that are just trying to make one barrel and try their hand at winemaking. So lots of fun. And which grapes did you work with this week? Well, bizarrely enough, uh, we've just started receiving fruit, and yesterday we had Sauvignon Blanc and Syrah come in at the same time. Who would have thought that? Yes, but it just goes to show how every grower is different, and they make the call on when they want to pick the grapes, so we'll see how they turn out. And now, on with the news. Now for a story that has a loose connection to wine, but one that may have huge repercussions for the internet. James Larkin owns the Napa wine label called Jack Quinn, which retails for around $125. Larkin and his longtime business partner, Michael Lacey, are facing trial next year for enabling sex abuse on their website, Backpage.com. They've owned newspapers across the US since the 1970s, 
and part of the revenue of the papers were back-page ads which included sex ads. Once newspaper sales began to decline in the mid-2000s, they expanded the ad service to the internet and it became a major source of income, especially the sex ads. All completely legal, but an ad service which has received scrutiny from the start. Internet rival Craigslist felt compelled to take sex ads off its site in 2010 due to political and police pressure. But Backpage.com continued, fighting legal cases by citing Section 230, part of an act passed in 96, which effectively means that a website provider is not culpable for what other people post on the site. So even if a sex ad posted on Backpage.com leads to sex abuse, Larkin and Lacey claim that their site was legally not responsible. However, law enforcers now believe they have enough email evidence to prove that the website knew of the sex abuse relating from the ads, and that they actually edited certain ads, making them a content creator, not just a provider. The case goes to the heart of the internet's libertarian belief in free speech against the need to control online behaviour. And there's more on this on Wired.com. It's a fascinating article, really goes into the heart of what the internet is about. It's quite a long read to lots of detail there. Mm-hmm. So this kind of plays into global uh, news as well with censorship, right? So there's a lot of uh, news going on about freedom of speech and what's going too far in terms of what the government regulates and what is made accessible for citizens. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, in the article, Larkin and Lacey are very adamant that uh, the, the need for free speech should be defended and that they've done nothing wrong and that you should be able to say what you want on the internet. And that if you ban a site like Backpage.com, which is quite mainstream, all that happens is that the people fielding sex ads and engaged in sex abuse go to under, underground sites so you can't actually find them as easy, easily when with Backpage.com it's quite apparent that they're there. So within the wine industry, what sort of repercussions do you think this will have on the winery itself? Jack Quinn, so it's an expensive wine, $125, and I think it's a pretty uh, hot seller. Yeah, for that price, it sells very quickly. Do you think there will be any boycotting on this wine? Well, it will remain to see. It's a very small label, and and, uh, James Larkin is cited in the article as drinking his own wine, so I'm sure he'll continue to do so. And he has lots of support as well. Um, because this isn't quite as clear-cut a case as maybe the um, the story suggests. Moving on to France, producers are consistently complaining about the country's appellation system, feeling that its rules are too restrictive and prevent experimentation. In Bordeaux, it's a little different, as complaints center around which producers are given extra prestige and which are not by the classifications. This is particularly contentious in Saint-Emilion, where the classifications are routinely challenged by producers not awarded the top Grand Cru Classé A or B distinction, which can cost the producers thousands of euros a bottle. This week, Hubert de Bouillard, owner of Angelus, and Philippe Casteja, owner of Chateau Trottevier, were ordered to stand trial for having illegal conflict of interest when the last classifications were made in 2012. Producers have complained since that classification that the process was rigged, and De Bouillard and Casteja are accused of using the classification to favor their own estates. Angelus was awarded Grand Cru Classe A and Trottevier Grand Cru, Grand Cru Classe B. This may all seem petty and bureaucratic, but there are consumers out there who base their buying decisions on these classifications. 
So this is a very historic uh, point of contention uh, in Bordeaux. Do you think that consumers really, it makes such a difference based on these class A or class B? Unfortunately, I think it does. Um, I hate these classifications. Teaching them is a nightmare, remembering what they all are in Saint-Emilion, and it differs from the rest of Bordeaux. One thing that Saint-Emilion does is that it theoretically changes these classifications every 10 years, but every time they try to do so, um, they get challenged by producers who are not happy with what they have been awarded. But I do think the reputation of a Saint-Emilion producer does revolve around these classifications. And Angelus, which is a very... Um, prestigious producer, if it was removed its class A classification, it would, uh, his reputation would really hurt. So what if they just took the approach, uh, like the Tuscans, you know, and that kind of super Tuscan uh, theme where they would just downgrade to a Van de Pei uh, classification or, or something along those lines? I know that consumers are opening their minds and looking for value, so do you think there's a way out? I think that would be a great idea, and I don't know why more Bordeaux producers don't do that. Maybe it's because these classifications are so prestigious and the price of the wines is so connected to the classifications that they daren't move out of the system, but I would be tempted. Well, and now with climate change and the new grapes being introduced into Bordeaux, who knows, maybe the whole system could collapse. Well, maybe not collapse, but certainly change radically. Moving northward to Champagne, we continue the discussion of climate change. So we've been talking a lot about climate change in this podcast over the last few weeks. It's an issue that can't be avoided. Last week, we mentioned Dan Petrosky's article on 750.com about how warmer temperatures are affecting the growing conditions for Cabernet Sauvignon. This week, Lark Mead, whose wine he makes, announced they're going to experiment with plantings of varieties suited to a warm climate, such as Aglianico and Toriga Nacional. So likewise in Champagne, Bollinger stated they have been experimenting for the last seven years with traditional Champagne varieties, such as Petit Melier and Arban. I think I butchered that pronunciation. The reason these two varieties naturally maintain their acidity in warmer conditions the pH coming in at under 3. This is all part of a widespread effort to ensure that champagne keeps its characteristically high acidity, which consumers love so much. So Matthew, um, I have to admit the Petit Melier and Arban, I'm pretty sure that's not how you pronounce it. But anyhow, I was not actually aware that those are traditional champagne varieties. Yes, we all know champagne for its three varieties, uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Meunier. But it's only since the 1920s that those three varieties have established themselves as the main grapes for Champagne. There were quite a few planted before that, including Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, and also Petit Melier and Arban. So I don't really know too much about these varieties, there's very, very little planted. And there are a handful of producers that do work with these varieties. It'll be interesting to see if they become more prevalent. Certainly uh, producers are looking to keep Champagne as Champagne as we know it. Well, simple, Matthew. They just have to move up to England. The Champenois are going to hurt me for that one, aren't they? Well, some of them are doing that already. And now for our wine of the week, which Katie is... Flotsam and Jetsam, Sanso 2017. Flotsam and Jetsam. So where is this from? Well, it's from one of my favourite uh, wine regions, and I think you share that love. South Africa. Chris and Suzanne Alheit make fantastic wine in South Africa. You should check out their white blend, Cartology. 
haven't had that in a while, have we, Matthew? We haven't. It's a really tasty, rich uh, blend, and we used to, used to enjoy that back in Manchester, and it was such a quick seller, so popular. Yeah, and highly allocated. I think we only had six bottles for the year, and, and we ended up drinking one, so that left only five for our customers. Which sold out within a week. So like many of the best producers in the country, Chris and Suzanne, they're all about working with South Africa's heritage, and this Sanso is a great example. Sanso was widely planted across South Africa at the beginning of the 20th century because of its high yields, and it's famously one of the parents of Pinotage. Sanso's a black grape from the Rhone that's well-suited to South Africa's warm Mediterranean climate, and the old vines dating back 100 years keep the yields low, concentrating quality. Chris and Suzanne say that Sanso can make lecker wine. Lecker being Afrikaans for fantastic. And I'd say we agree. We definitely agree. I'm a huge fan of this wine. If you've never tasted it before, you should really check it out. Anyone who's had this wine immediately gravitates towards it because it's so interesting, so distinctive, and a really good example of the wine that South Africa is making these days. And it kind of reminds me your food and wine podcast with Andrea Nightingale. Uh, check it out on Matthew's World of Wine and Drink. And you talked about Beaujolais and how it's such a versatile food wine. You can really pair it with just about anything. So that's kind of how I feel about, about this example of Sanso. And it's only $27. Yep. It's that light-bodied, pale-colored, very approachable, very agreeable wine. And that's what uh, they're trying to do with this label make wines which represent South Africa, but which are not difficult to drink, which are very um, appealing. And it's also an easy 12.5% alcohol, so you can easily share a bottle and be, still be standing. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's funny, what I love about wine is just you discover different things. And when we were in Cape Town, we were at a wine bar, we just sat outside, and I just ordered a glass of this wine knowing nothing about it. I tasted it and thought, wow, this is fantastic. What is it? And then I looked at the bottle and I was like, ah, Chris and Suzanne Alhite make this wine and it all comes together. Well, cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. Join us next week on Monday for another Wind Up. Cheerio. Cheerio.